Around 30 AD, Jesus Christ died on a cross, rose again and ascended into heaven. What happened next was extraordinary. A few days later, the Holy Spirit filled a small gathering of Jewish believers. Their hearts were set on fire and they boldly shared the good news of Jesus. Now, one thing about fire is it spreads and early Christianity spread like wildfire despite fierce persecution and quickly became a global movement. Today, it's estimated that 2.3 billion people claim to follow Jesus Christ. The book of Acts tells the remarkable story of the spread of early Christianity and the story is still being written today. Now God wants to set our hearts on fire with his love so we can share the good news of Jesus with our world. Welcome to session seven, Acts and the Church. So the book of Acts was written by Dr. Luke. It's his sequel to Luke's gospel, telling us what happened next. And the key is the symmetry. In Luke's gospel, Jesus healed the sick and preached the good news. Now in Acts, Jesus's followers heal the sick and preach the good news of Jesus to the world. But how is that possible? How can ordinary people like you and me do the things that Jesus did? If you told me to write like William Shakespeare or sing like Pavarotti or run like Usain Bolt, I would say, I can't. And if Acts is suggesting that I should continue the ministry of Jesus, I can't. But what if the same spirit that empowered Jesus should come and live in us, the spirit of Jesus? And that's the story of the book of Acts. In chapter one, just before Jesus returned to heaven, he promised his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The word power in Acts is a Greek word, dunamis, from which we get our English words dynamite or dynamic. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people to be dynamic agents of the kingdom, continuing the ministry of Jesus to the world. Now, there are two halves to the book of Acts that form the structure for this session. Chapters 1 to 12 start with the day of Pentecost, and it's all based in Jerusalem with the apostle Peter as the main character. But then chapters 13 to 28 switch focus to the apostle Paul. Through his mission trips, the good news spreads beyond Jewish regions into modern-day Greece and Turkey and even the world capital of Rome. And all of this in the days before budget flights and social media. Now, as we think about the different chapters of the Bible story so far, remember that we've seen Genesis and Abraham. And then Moses, who gave the law. And then judges like, well, like Deborah. And kings like David. Then the era of the prophets. And exile, before finally the arrival of the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, 
whose death and resurrection is the hinge of the whole story. Now, this book of Acts is our chapter of the story. We fit in here because Acts records the immediate phase after Jesus. But we continue this chapter of the story today. Now, this chapter of ours all started with a bang on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was an important Jewish festival celebrating the beginning of harvest. So imagine the streets of Jerusalem packed with crowds of pilgrims from many nations and 120 of Jesus' followers were meeting to pray. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire came to rest on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what is going on here? Well, did you notice two references to tongues? Firstly, tongues or flames of fire, which symbolized God's presence. Now, remember back in the Old Testament, Elijah on Mount Carmel, heavenly fire consumed the altar. And remember Israel at Mount Sinai, God's presence was like pyrotechnic eruptions. And remember Moses at the burning bush, the holy fire of the great I Am. So in the Old Testament, fire symbolized God's holy presence, but it always kept a safe distance from God's people. But now, on the day of Pentecost, this fire came to rest on God's people. God was taking up residence in the hearts of those who believed in Jesus. And this holy fire separated into tongues that came to rest on each of them. Now, all of them were filled with the Spirit. Not just the 12 apostles, but 120 ordinary Christians. Whereas in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Spirit had been reserved for prophets and priests and kings, now all God's people experienced this life-changing power. And then secondly, there were foreign tongues, symbolizing international unity. As the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other human languages, languages they'd not learnt. Now remember, it was an international crowd in Jerusalem who began to hear this amazing phenomenon, uneducated people, now fluent linguists, praising God in the languages of the whole world. They assumed these people must be drunk, but Peter said, don't be silly, people don't get drunk at nine in the morning. Instead, this is all about something way back that happened in Genesis. Remember the Tower of Babel. God here confused the languages of the peoples and scattered them. But now divided nations are being reunited in God. So Pentecost gives an early glimpse of a future day of what it will be like when all peoples are one worshiping God again. In our local church, that I attend, there are over 60 nationalities represented. And I recently got to know a guy called Bibi, who moved over from the Congo a couple of years ago. And though we are from totally different cultures and can't communicate easily, we actually have so much in common. We share one faith in Jesus. We have both received the same Holy Spirit. We're not strangers, we're brothers. The Holy Spirit, 
creates one multicultural intergenerational family. It's a global miracle and it all started at Pentecost. So as the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, things began to change. Firstly, God's people found a new courage. Take Peter as an example. Just 50 days earlier, he was a coward and denied even knowing Jesus. But now, in the same streets to many of the same people, he stands tall and preaches the good news of Jesus. So what made the difference? Well, let me explain by sharing some of my own story. I grew up in a Christian family and made a commitment to Christ at a young age. But in high school, I became ashamed of my faith. On one occasion, I was coming home with friends on the school bus and the driver was handing out leaflets for a Christian event. My friends screwed it up and threw it on the floor in front of him and said, well, words I can't repeat, but let's just say Christian rubbish. Then they looked at me to see what I would do. I screwed it up, I threw it on the floor, and I said exactly the same as them. I still feel ashamed thinking about it now. But only a couple of years later, in front of those same friends, I stood in front of my whole class and explained the good news of Jesus. What made the difference? I'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. He set me free from the fear of what others think and gave me new courage. The Holy Spirit brings a new boldness. He did it for Peter, for me, and he can do it for you too. And then secondly, Pentecost was the birthday of the Christian church. Those who received Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those who believed got baptised to show it. Now, baptism marks the start of a new life in Christ. And when 3,000 people got dunked on the same day, it would have caused quite a splash in Jerusalem. And this is our chapter of the story too. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives us a brand new start and we show our new commitment by getting baptised. Now, these early Christians formed new communities, the church. They met together regularly, sometimes in small gatherings in homes and other times in large meetings at the temple. So Christianity is all about community. If you take a red hot coal out of the fire and put it on its own, it quickly goes cold. The Holy Spirit joins us together to keep our passion and fulfill our mission in community. So what a difference a day makes. Pentecost was the birthday of the Christian church. And after Pentecost, Acts records the explosive growth of Christianity in several cycles of expansion. The first of these is captured in Acts 3 to 4, then another in 5 to 6, and then a third in 7 to 8. And each has similar stages. So let's consider the third cycle as an example. And at the centre of it was Stephen, who interestingly was not an apostle. 
In fact, his role in the church was to sort out a benefit system for poor widows. But now, of course, every Christian is full of the Holy Spirit. So God does extraordinary things through this ordinary guy. Firstly then, the growth of the church was punctuated by powerful miracles and healings. Acts 6 says that Stephen was doing great miracles and no surprise, crowds gathered to find out what was going on. I can remember praying for a lady who was going blind and to my amazement, she was suddenly healed right there and then in front of me and her husband. And as word spread about the miracle, no surprise, more people started turning up at church, including some of her family. And then next, preaching. Stephen was brought before the Jewish authorities and there, full of the Holy Spirit, he gave a bold speech. In fact, it was an early version of a Bible course. He went through the whole of the Old Testament to show that Jesus fulfilled Israel's history. So if you want a recap of the story so far, have a read of Acts chapter 7. But then next came persecution. Stephen's sermon made the Jewish leaders furious. And we read they cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. Stephen became the first Christian martyr dying for his faith in Jesus. And as a result, hundreds of Christians were forced to flee Jerusalem for fear of their lives. But here's the surprise. Next, expansion. Far from stopping Christianity, this persecution ended up spreading it. Imagine the Jerusalem church like a dandelion. As the wind of persecution came, it scattered the seed and new churches started springing up everywhere. Now this story of persecution and expansion continues today. Consider the house church movement in China. Despite real persecution from the authorities, the church has grown at an astonishing rate. Sociologists now predict over 150 million Chinese Christians by 2030, which would make it the largest Christian population on earth. An early Christian in the second century summed it up well, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is a rare surviving copy of a translation of the Bible into Malagasy, the language spoken on the island of Madagascar. It's covered in animal skin to protect it because this was buried in a hole in the ground. Why? Well, in the 19th century, a small Christian population on the island faced terrible persecution. Many were killed, but before they died, they buried their Bibles because they loved them so much and wanted to keep them safe for their children to read. So they dug holes and hid them in the ground, hoping they would be found once the persecution had stopped. And this one was. Here's an astonishing fact. Before the persecution broke out, there were only 200 Christians on the island. After the persecution, when some missionaries returned to see what was left, to their amazement, they found over 2,000 Christians, 10 times more. The blood of the martyrs really is the seed of the church. In Acts chapter 8, we see the early church expanding in spite of great danger. After Stephen's death, Jewish Christians like Philip shared the good news with Samaritans. So let's consider how the gospel leaps over social divisions and spreads like wildfire. 
in the story of Acts and today. So the first half of Acts focused on the Jerusalem church and especially the Apostle Peter. But from Acts chapter 9 onwards, we are introduced to Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul. Now Paul was the least likely candidate to become a great Christian leader. When the Jewish authorities stoned Stephen, Paul cheered them on. Wouldn't it have been fun to whisper to him at that moment, 2,000 years from now, we'll be talking about you as a great Christian leader. I think God's got a sense of humour. But although an unlikely choice, Paul's identity combined three important privileges. Firstly, he was a Roman citizen, and this gave him political protection, which came in handy given that the Middle East and Europe were under Roman rule. Paul was also well-educated in Greek literature and philosophy, which dominated the culture of his day. And Paul was a proud Jew. He was educated by a famous Jewish rabbi and would have known the Hebrew scriptures backwards. Here's how he later summarized his Jewish credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. So why did Paul hate Christians so much? Well, from his perspective, it was ridiculous to worship Jesus of Nazareth. He'd been crucified by Israel's enemies, the Romans. How could he possibly be the Messiah? So Paul believed that Jesus was a cursed blasphemer. That is, until he met him. <laughs> en route to Damascus to imprison Christians, the glory of Jesus appeared so bright that it outshone the Mediterranean sun and knocked Paul off his horse, leaving him blinded. But in his blindness, he saw the truth. Jesus was indeed the risen Messiah, the Lord of all. And Jesus asked Paul a revealing question. Why are you persecuting me? Through that question, Paul must have realised that Christians were in fact the people of God. As Paul hurt Christians, he was actually hurting Jesus. Perhaps this was the origin of Paul's favourite metaphor for the church, the body of Christ, with Jesus himself as the head. Christ and the church are one. We can't love Jesus and ignore his church. Now this Damascus Road experience was a game changer. From now on, Paul would be known by his Roman name, the Apostle Paul indicating his new calling as a missionary to the Gentiles. You see, until now, the gospel had only spread from Jerusalem to Jewish regions, including Judea and Samaria. But now, after a period of preparation, in 46 AD, Paul set off on the first of several mission trips to non-Jewish regions. And the rest of the book of Acts is like a travel journal recording what happened as the gospel spread. For example, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were part of the church in Antioch 
And interestingly, this is where Jesus's followers were first called Christians, a nickname that meant one who belongs to and follows Christ. So Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch and went to a region known as Galatia in modern-day Turkey. In several cities, they preached the good news and they took a hammering from the authorities. On one occasion, Paul was stoned until he appeared dead. He got knocked down, but he got up again. And by the end of their trip, scores of Jews and Gentiles had believed in Jesus and several new churches were started. Now, when Paul got back to Antioch after this first mission to Gentile regions, it caused a storm of controversy. Some Jewish Christians, known as the Circumcision Party, were furious that Gentiles were being considered the covenant people of God without keeping Jewish laws. For them, the equation of salvation was Jesus plus Jewish laws, especially circumcision, equals salvation. But Paul was adamant. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Instead, the equation was radically simple. Jesus equals salvation. Faith in Jesus is the only requirement. As he would later say to a prison jailer in Greece, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now this truth remains powerful today. To be saved does not require Jesus plus being born in a Christian country or plus giving loads to charity. It's simply Jesus. So a crisis meeting was called in Jerusalem to decide the issue. Paul and Barnabas and their opponents went to meet the 12 apostles. And this is known as the Council of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts 15. And their decision was clear. Under the new covenant... Jewish laws were not necessary for Gentiles. So the apostles wrote a letter to convey that decision to all the churches. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. These simple requirements preserve both purity and unity. But notice there is no mention of circumcision. Simply faith in Jesus makes us God's people. So with this letter in his pocket, Paul set off on even more ambitious mission trips. Now, over the course of the next two decades, Paul's mission trips took him to a remarkable number of places. As well as returning to cities in the region of Galatia, Paul and his companions went to Troas and Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. These were all major cities in southern Europe with imposing buildings, large populations and strong trade connections. So Paul travelled hundreds of miles on Roman roads to share the good news. But how did he do it? What was Paul's strategy? Well, firstly, Paul and his teams chose urban locations that influenced whole regions. For example, Paul spent considerable time 
in the wealthy city of Ephesus. And as he reached merchants and traders there, they went back to their hometowns and shared the gospel. One example was Epaphras from Colossae. On returning from Ephesus, he started a church in his own backyard. And years later, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae, even though he'd actually never been there himself. So from the major cities, the gospel filled whole regions. Now, Paul and his companions also learned how to communicate the message of Jesus in really creative ways. Most cities in Europe had at least a small Jewish population. Paul normally started in the synagogue using the Old Testament scrolls to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah. But in Acts, we also see Paul preaching to Greek audiences. In Athens, he preached on Mars Hill, a well-known debating forum, and to this crowd, he quoted their own celebrities, Greek poets and philosophers, in order to connect the Christian message to their culture. So the gospel is incredibly versatile. It can be translated into every language and communicated to every culture. Now, those who responded to the message were gathered into congregations and they met in homes as they didn't own buildings. For example, in Philippi, a wealthy merchant called Lydia offered hospitality to the church in her home. Now, imagine the scene. Paul and a few converts meeting in a Roman house, Jews and Gentiles, masters and slaves, male and female, all social divisions broken down by this radical new community of faith. Now, Paul later wrote letters to these churches, also known as epistles. You can hear the name of the city that each letter was addressed to, to the church in Philippi, Philippians to the church in Thessalonica, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and so on. So these letters would have been read out to the church as it gathered together. And of the 27 books that make up our New Testament, 13 of them are letters by Paul. And it's worth bearing in mind that they're actually arranged according to size, from largest through to smallest. And the rest of the New Testament also comprises letters written by the likes of Peter and James and John. So when we read these New Testament letters, how should we interpret them? Well, remember our two basic questions. Firstly, what? What was the original context of the letter? If, for example, you were reading 1 and 2 Corinthians, it would really help to know a bit about the context in the city of Corinth. This young Greek city was notorious for sexual immorality and a fascination with spirituality. The city contained over 20 temples to different gods, and these contained restaurants and spaces for socialising and to do business. Now, this background information helps explain some of the tricky ethical dilemmas faced by new Christians in Corinth. In addition, it helps to understand some of the crazy stuff that was happening in the church itself in Corinth. Some Christians were sleeping with prostitutes and then turning up to church as if what they did with their bodies didn't matter. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 
you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now in our sex craze culture, where porn and promiscuity are just standard, we also need to be reminded that worship has everything to do with our bodies. Now our second question is, now what? Now what do these letters mean for us today? As we apply the epistles to our setting, we may need to make some adjustments because specific cultural practices in the first century no longer work the same way. In his letter to the Roman church, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now it's been a while since I've had a kiss in church, especially a holy kiss, but that was a cultural practice to convey true acceptance. In our context, there may be other ways of extending an equally warm welcome. So the practice may have changed, but the principle remains. Now, despite some cultural adjustments, these New Testament letters remain God's word to us. Remember what Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. These letters are not just Paul's ideas that we can pick and mix. How we respond to the Bible is how we respond to God himself. Previously, we compared the Bible to a spirit level. My wife used to live in a quaint old cottage before we got married. And one day she asked me to hang a painting for her. So eager to impress, I got out my spirit level and fixed the painting so the bubble was right in the center. Perfect. Only when I stepped back and looked at the painting, it was crooked. So I checked it again. It was definitely straight. My wife came in. It's crooked. So I checked it again. In fact, it was level. But in this old cottage, everything else was crooked. The walls were bowed. The window frames were wonky. And the door was warped. So set in that context, the one thing that was actually straight looked like it was the problem. Now in our culture, the teachings of the Bible can appear to be out of place, and it's tempting to try and adjust the message to fit in. But the Bible is God's truth and should not be changed. Even when it's countercultural, let's set God's word as the spirit level for all of life. Now, when we choose to build our lives on God's word, we are transformed. Take, for example, Paul's most famous letter, Romans. This has changed the lives of millions, including some really influential figures in church history. In the fourth century, St. Augustine was converted by reading Romans. He described it this way, relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and the shadows of doubt were dispelled. In the 16th century, Martin Luther triggered the Protestant Reformation. After striving as a monk, he discovered in Romans the good news that we're not saved because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus already has done. He later described Romans as the gateway to heaven. Then in the 18th century, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, was transformed while listening to Luther's introduction to Romans. He had a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit and said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
And now in the 21st century, my friend Danny, a former drug addict, attended a course I was teaching on Romans and studying this book transformed his whole life. In his own words, he said, I've taken a lot of medicine in my time, but now the Bible is my medicine fixing me up on the inside. So as we approach the end of the Bible course, why not consider going a bit deeper by studying Romans for yourself? Use a Bible commentary and go through its amazing teaching verse by verse. But beware, like Augustine, Luther, Wesley and Danny, this book could seriously change your life. Now, as we saw in our daily readings this week, by the end of Acts, Paul followed up his letter with a visit to Rome. But this mission trip was not as he would have planned. Acts finishes with Paul under house arrest and awaiting trial before the emperor in Rome. But on death row, guess what Paul's doing? Sharing the good news of Jesus with the guards he was chained to. They were quite literally his captive audience. Paul lived in Rome two whole years, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And with that, the book of Acts ends, abruptly and without any sense of closure. Why? Because it's not the end of the story. This part is still being written today, filled with the same Spirit who empowered Jesus, Peter, Stephen and Paul, we can now take God's good news to the world and write the next chapter of this amazing story. On the day of Pentecost, God sent his Holy Spirit as tongues of fire. In a short space of time, the good news of Jesus spread like wildfire from Jerusalem to Rome and on and on and on. Now it's our turn to be set on fire with God's love, bringing hope to a dark world. This is our mission. This is God's story. So let's finish this session by reflecting on how we can play our part in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you.